You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. I have the privilege of serving in a leadership role in Great Commission Collective, and Jeff encouraged me to share a couple of thoughts about, about the collective. And, and I recognize there might be folks sitting here saying, well, yeah, okay, what, what is a Great Commission Collective? I don't really get that. Great Commission Collective is a group that partners churches together to plant churches and, and strengthen leaders. So on the, on the planting side, that means that, that we work together to assess church planters. We work together to train church planters, to support them, to fund them once they're in the field, and then to provide ongoing coaching as well. And so right now we're, we're planting out eight different church planters and, and supporting another 14 different church planters in places like not only here in the United States, but Ireland and Scotland and Rwanda and India and Canada and, and other places as well. And that's really cool. We, we feel so grateful to God for that. So that's kind of on the planting side. I said planting churches, but the other side is strengthening leaders and, and what we're doing there is we're, we're training leaders. We, we create cohorts, training cohorts for men and for women so that they can improve in their leadership in the areas to which they are called. We provide ongoing coaching for leaders, for senior pastors. We, we dedicate ourselves to training pluralities, eldership, so that they can know what it means to, to operate not simply as individuals but as an elder team. And we also make ourselves available for, for crisis intervention. You know, if things go bad at a, at a church or among an eldership team, we can, we can come in and, and we can be of service. Now, what, what Jeff didn't say is that whatever extent GCC, to whatever extent GCC is thriving right now, and God's been very good to us, as we look out, we're going to have a lead conference. That's the title of our conference. It starts in about 10 days. Paul Tripp's going to be conducting it. Looking forward to that. To whatever extent there's fruitfulness going on, it's because there is a very strong and committed board of which Jeff is a vital part of that board. And, and these men and their wives have been an enormous support to that mission that I just described, and, and for me personally as well. And so, I, I come, if I accomplished nothing else this morning, I wanted to have the opportunity to look you all in the, in the eye and just tell you how much I thank God for this church because you support that man, how much I thank God for, for, for Sally because she supports her husband, and for, and for Jeff and the way that they're committed to not only serving you and loving you, but also serving folks like me that are outside of you, that are trying to plant churches and, and, and doing that on your behalf. And so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to God, and I'm grateful to be part of, of GCC. You know, we're not, a, we're not a big group, and we don't regard ourselves as exceptionally talented, but we are trying to be faithful, and I'm so glad we get to be faithful with in partnership with churches like, like this one. So thank you, and thanks for receiving me so warmly. Now, uh, far more important than any network is the Word of God, so let's open up our Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. 
This morning's message is titled, The Quest for Contentment. And I'm going to read beginning in verse 11, just three verses down through verse 13. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray together. Lord, I just want to take that last passage and ask you to make that a reality in our souls today, Lord, that, that we, we begin to experience you in a greater measure as the one who, who enables us to do all things because you strengthen us. And you do that by helping us to understand what it means to be content. Help us in that this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me begin this morning with a question. How do you respond when you face some incomplete goal, some unsatisfied desire, or maybe an unfulfilled dream? And maybe that hits you right where you're sitting this morning, because maybe you had, you had a vision for the path of your life, but the reality is you haven't even begun on that path yet. Maybe you feel like you can't even find that path. Or maybe you found the path, but, but the journey is so much slower than you ever expected it to be. You know, I had to face that in the area of, of writing. I, I, writing is something I've done a little bit of, it's something I aspired to for many years. And uh, when it did come, it didn't come in the way I expected. It didn't come in the timetable I predicted. It didn't come in anything of what I thought it was going to be. <clears throat> in fact, for a long stretch, like over almost 20 years, it didn't come at all. And it's like I had this dream that remained strong and unsatisfied, this dream that was like a tractor beam for me that remained unfulfilled. It was always out of reach. You have anything in your life like that? For me, writing felt like this, this elephant burial ground for my dreams. It was the place where my dreams went to die. You got anything like that? Some incomplete goal, some unfulfilled dream that, that kind of hovers over you like a dark cloud, and, and, it, and it settles upon our soul, and it settles actually in a form of a statement. It's a statement that haunts us and stalks us and sometimes taunts us because it whispers this, this paralyzing thought, by now, I should have been, and then we fill in the blank in all these different ways. 
By now, I should have been married. By now, I should have been financially stable. By now, I should have been more healthy or had a better job or had better kids or had a better life in some way. It is the voice of unsatisfied desire, and you may not be aware of it, but it can also be the voice of discontent. Discontentment happens when our ambitions are frustrated. We aspire to something, and God does not deliver it, and so we stew in self-pity and wonder why God is so sloppy in the way he runs our life. Because we have not what we desire. Now, to desire health, to desire leadership, to desire stability is not wrong. That can actually be a very good thing. It can be a sign of very good and godly dreams. But what I'm talking about this morning, the real issue that we need to penetrate down into is how we live and how we feel and how we relate to God when we don't get what we want when we want it. Because when desires become demands, we become discontent. We have not what we desire. Now, there are a number of things that I want to talk about today, but I want to telegraph to you right up front where we're going. I want to telegraph what I think is the key to contentment. And it is summed up in the words of one of my favorite Puritan authors, a guy named Thomas Watson, who once said, quote, If you have not what you desire, you have more than you deserve. If you have not what you desire, you have more than you deserve. Now, we're going to see that in this passage, and I want to declare that right up front as our destination. But let's, for the moment, just move that off to the side, and let's return to Philippians and and Paul, and a little bit of line-on-line exposition of what's going on here in verses 11 through 13. So, again, in Philippians, we meet Paul. And by the way, as we read this and as we study it, let's remember that Paul is not perched on some kind of Ikea customized desk writing these thoughts as they just kind of come to his mind because he's journaling Paul is in prison. Paul is constrained. Some commentators suggest he's he's been chained to a Roman guard. So, Paul's in prison and constrained, and he's writing to this church that he loves. Now, the Philippians, they're a good church, but like all good churches, they have problems. Where you have people, you have problems. Where you have more people, you have more problems. And so, the The Philippians' problems deal with the area of disunity and conflict, and and Paul wants to help them. He's got a heart to serve them. If you've ever been in a situation, if right now you're in a situation where you know someone who needs your help, but they're outside of your reach, you can probably understand where Paul is as he's trying to reach out to the Philippians here, because he's blocked from helping them. And so he writes this epistle. And in chapter 4, he addresses specifically their financial support. He He says, I thank God for it. But he wants them to understand something, and that is that he doesn't 
need it. Because Paul's learned something about this secret of contentment. He's learned to live having not what he desired. Actually, let's just listen to him talk about it, beginning back in verse 11. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. Again, he's talking about financial need, but he's clearly talking about more than financial need because he says, for I have learned in whatever situation, whatever situation I've learned to be content. Now, let's just Let's just tap the brakes for a second and make sure we don't just rush on without recognizing what's being said here. Who is addressing us here? Paul is in prison and content. Paul is in prison and restrained, but content. Paul is in prison, restrained, constrained, shackled, unable to have movement, unable to do anything that he wants to do, unable to fulfill any aspirations, any dreams, anything that he's thought about for so many years, and yet he comes back to us and he says, I am content. Why? Well, he tells us because he has unlocked a secret He's unlocked the mystery of what Jeremiah Burroughs calls the rare jewel of Christian contentment. And, and, and this is how Paul says it. He says, in whatever situation I am, I've learned to be content. And just so that doesn't remain an abstraction to us, like it's clinical and we really don't understand how that touches down on ground, he spells it out. He says, I can abound and I can be brought low. I can face plenty and hunger, abundance and need, without being plagued by that question of, by now I should have been somewhere different than I am or someone different than who I am. See, there's a sense where Paul has come to a place where he is able to be satisfied and at peace with God in all situations. Actually, he's able to be satisfied and at peace with God in all situations without abandoning his dreams. You say, Dave, well, what do you mean by that? Well, one of the ways that we try to punish God for the poor decisions he makes about our life is we give up our dreams. We withdraw our aspirations for him. In other words, the average believer does not say when God, they're disappointed with God, they don't say, oh, okay, God, this is how you roll. You never tell me anything. You just let it play out. I don't have any understanding of what's going on. Therefore, I'm bailing out on you. The average believer doesn't go there. The average believer says, oh, I get it. You hold all the cards, you get all the clarity, I get nothing. And so this is what I'm going to do in response. I'm going to walk off of the playing field, move over the track, climb into the stands, and take my seat. I'm going to withhold my passion. You're not going to get my ambition for you. I'm going to withdraw that and punish you for the way that you're, you're governing my life. And yet here we have Paul sitting in prison, and we're discovering together that Paul's 
sense of significance was not situational. His sense of significance was not tied to his status in any season of life. His peace did not rest in anything outside of his relationship with God. Boy, do I want to be like that because I'm not. I choose messages based upon what I need to hear, and then you guys get to listen in. I read a biography once by a guy named James Marston. It was on Jonathan Edwards. He has this one line where he just makes like a passing comment about Jonathan Edwards. He says of Jonathan Edwards, quote, his happiness was outside of the reach of his enemies. I read that and I thought, can that be said of me? Go through that exercise yourself. Can that be said of, of you? Is your happiness outside of the reach of your boss? Is it outside of the reach of your adult children? Is it outside of the reach of your portfolio? Outside of the reach of those things that, 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 that have meaning for us? Because all of that is just another way to ask the question, are we content? Now, if you're anything like me, you know, when Paul's speaking, you kind of feel, you can feel like, oh, okay, yeah, but this is Paul. He's, he's kind of untouchable in these things. After all, he's the apostle to the Gentile. I mean, the dude has been to the third heaven. Maybe contentment was like a consolation gift for being able to go there and come. I don't know how this works, but Paul doesn't allow us to go there. Paul says in verse 11, I have learned the secret. See, contentment's not included with the, the conversion package, you know, the thing that we get from the Holy Spirit, conversion. It, it's not included in that. I wish it was. Don't you wish it was that easy? Like, come in an email, an attachment, and click, apply, boom, it's there, it's in. But it doesn't work that way. This is learned. This is acquired. This is developed. And the good news for us this morning is that it was available to Paul and it's available to us as well. Now you say, how does that work, Dave? Well, let's just, let's just keep reading and see how Paul describes it. Verse 12, he says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and, and need. And so, Paul, Paul kind of specifies here the field of experience in which our life meets opportunities for contentment. It's, and, and it's kind of like he uses words that represent two sets of extremes. So, he uses abounding, plenty, abundance. And, 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 you know, when he's talking about those things, he's all the way down here on this end of the field, but he's talking about the good times. You got the raise. Congratulations, you were praying for it, and, and, and your hard work has been acknowledged, and that's wonderful. Or the prayer, your prayer has been answered. You're pregnant, and it's been so long, and you wondered, and, and, and God has been good, and, 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 and a baby is coming, or, or you were promoted, 
or, or selected for a role. And, you know, in other words, those times where our dreams are coming alive and life is getting good and our ambitions are fat and happy. To adapt Watson's quote, we have what we desire. Now listen, don't miss this because this is what Paul says. Paul says, yeah, I, I know how to do that. I know how to abound. I know how to do plenty. I mean, I mean, you know, there's an instinct for us to think, uh, yeah, Paul, I'm not sure why you're saying that, Paul. Don't we all know how to do plenty? Don't we all know how to do abundance? Lord, do you doubt that thy servant David does not know how to do plenty? Lord, smite me with Alexis, and I will show thee, I will show thee that I can do plenty. Let me hit the lottery, O Lord, and I will steward it for your name. And have you ever noticed that all our dreams are, are, are always dreams of abounding and abundance? It's, it's really rare to dream low, you know? It's really too as, rare to aspire low. Oh, Johnny wants to be homeless. Go, Johnny, go. <laughs> because to dream is to aspire to a better future. But here's the thing that Paul realized. Here's the thing with the transformed Paul, and that was he realized that his happiness could not be linked to a satisfied dream. That his happiness could not be linked to a vision of the future where he was always ascending, where he was always abounding, where everything was always in abundance and prosperous. Because that's just not reality. Always abounding is not reality, but there's a second reason as well. And this one may even be more important. And that is that sometimes our greatest temptations can come not through trials and tribulations, but from plenty and abundance and praise. You know, there's this fascinating proverb that's kind of tucked away in Proverbs chapter 27. So it's Proverbs 27, verse 21. It says, the, the crucible is for silver, the furnace for gold, and a man is tested by his praise. You don't expect it to end that way. I mean, you just assume that it's going to go to affliction. A man is tested by his trials. A man is tested by his tribulations. But it says a man is tested and a woman is tested by her praise. Now, think about the metaphors here, crucible and furnace. What they both do is they both heat things. They test things by heating things. And praise, there's something about praise where praise heats the heart and tests the heart in a way that a trial will not heat the heart and test the heart. And praise, in so doing, reveals the heart in a unique way. I mean, I mean, I'm thinking about in Esther, you know, Haman. Haman is second in the kingdom. Everyone has to bow and pay homage to Haman. And everyone does, except for 
Who? Yes, Mordecai. Everyone bows and pays homage to Haman except for Mordecai. So what does Haman do? What does the book of Esther talk about? Well, it says that Haman lives the rest of his life as a really satisfied guy because almost everyone paid homage to him. And he recognized that, you know what? Having almost everyone pay homage to me isn't a bad way to live, right? Isn't that how it happened? No. (laughs) Haman launches a campaign to exterminate all of the Jews. Why? Because one man would not praise him. Because the, the praise of almost everyone was not enough. The praise of most people was not enough. He was only satisfied by the praise of all. His heart was tested by praise. His heart was revealed by praise. Charles Spurgeon once said, quote, The Christian more often disgraces his profession in prosperity than when he is being abased. And Paul says, I know that. I get that. And so Paul discerned the temptations of abounding and abundance and plenty. In fact, Paul treated plenty and hunger just the same. He treated them as places he could potentially seek his satisfaction for Jesus outside of Jesus. And so he has this one whole set of experiences where he says, yeah, I've I've learned how to do that. The abounding, the abundance, the plenty thing, I've, I've learned that. But then Paul describes another set of experiences as well. To use his words, he says, being brought low, facing hunger, facing need. He's talking about the hard times. He's talking about the by now I should have been times. And maybe you're coloring yourself into this picture right now. Maybe you were passed over at work. Or, or maybe there was, there was plenty of capital, but the business still failed and you, you can't believe it. Or this friendship that you thought you'd have for the rest of your life just turned and got whacked out over the pandemic or, or just went to a dark, a different place, and now it feels like you can't even talk to one another. Or you've failed in some way. You know what I'm talking about. Those, those times, those seasons, where it just feels like our dreams are on a respirator gasping for air. And then on top of that, yeah, we do have a pandemic. We feel, we feel powerless It makes you feel impotent to move things forward. And I don't know, it's just this kind of ambivalence that that hangs over us like a cloud. And for many people, many Christians, their ambitions are starved. We have not what we desire. And that's where Paul rises up. He comes alongside of us. He puts his arm around us and says, yeah, I know how to do that as well. I've learned to be brought low. See, that means that Paul could be content with unsatisfied dreams. 
He could be content with unsatisfied aspirations. He could be content even with failure. In fact, the lesson of contentment seems so important to God for Paul that God would ordain that Paul be brought low. God would give Paul a thorn, stick it in his side, have him experience weakness, have him pray three different times for God to release it. And God says, no, no, you're going to learn far more by keeping that thorn than you'll ever learn apart from it. I'm going to blow your mind with an experience of grace because you have that thorn. Because there is this weakness. There's this being brought low, facing hunger, facing need. And I don't know what it is for you this morning. Maybe it's something huge. You know, maybe it's an unexpected illness that isn't resolving and it's just continuing on. Or, or a layoff. Or, or a financial hit. Or, or maybe it's something to, just small that, you know, kind of relates into a weakness you have. You know, something that dogs you. Somewhere that God is, is, is revealing your your, your limitations, I'm, I'm smiling because I'm, I'm remembering this day that I'm sitting in the family room and, and I'm reading on, on the chair and Kim's over on the couch and she's reading a book and, and uh, Kim thought she heard the water running. She says to me, is one of the kids in the, in the basement shower? I listened for a second. I said, I said, no, I don't think so. She said, oh, Okay. And I said, oh, okay, yeah, let's just go back and read. And so I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm listening. And about 10 minutes later, this random thought pierces my consciousness. I thought, wait a minute, we don't even have a basement shower. And I do hear water running. And so I jumped up, I dropped my book on the floor, I run downstairs, I look around the corner, and there is a hole in our wall. And behind the hole, there's a pipe, and in the pipe, there's a hole, and there's water blowing through the pipe across the basement and splashing off of the other wall. Actually, my first thought when I saw it is, wow, this is magnificent. Look at this. This is beautiful. And then I realized, this is my house. This is a problem. And I completely skipped the what to do when the pipes break and you need to shut the water real down quickly class in high school. So I had no idea what I was supposed to do. And so I'm running around the house, like flipping light switches and, and turning knobs and just doing what, because I honestly don't know. I mean, I'm in my worst when I'm in that situation and, and nothing is happening and the water's pouring into the basement and I'm standing there and it's getting higher and higher. So we got this neighbor, Ralph. <laughs> you know, Ralph's one of these guys who knows how to do everything. Hey, what are you doing this weekend, Ralph? Well, I had a couple of spare hours, so I thought I'd put an addition on the house here and you know, next week it's going to be a helipad on the toe. You know, I hate Ralph. <laughs> so Kim calls him. Ralph, it's Dave, again, in the basement. You need to get over here right away. Ralph walks in to the basement door. He locks eyes with me. He's walking across the basement. He, he, he locks eyes with me, walks in 
the basement, maintaining eye contact the whole time. He opens up a closet door, never breaks eye contact. He reaches in. He turns a knob, eye contact still intact. He turns a knob, water shuts off, pipe shuts down, turns around, eye contact the whole way, and walks out of the basement door. (laughs) And I'm standing there in three inches of water. Now, those are low moments. And that one's kind of a, a, a comical one. But, but let's be honest, it, it gets a lot worse than that, doesn't it? In fact, let me ask you a question. Where, where is the pipe gushing in your house right now? Maybe you're here all weekend for the marriage retreat. And maybe you're realizing, wow, I, you know, I went in, I thought it was a drip, and it's a gusher, and it's filling up the house, and we need to do something. Maybe it's parenting. Maybe, it's, maybe you've been under evaluation at work, and it doesn't look good, and, and you, you, you've just felt that ongoing scrutiny that, 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 that doesn't let up, and it doesn't seem to be turning the corner. I mean, my goodness, we've been in the middle of this pandemic that doesn't resolve. It's, it's reshuffled our lives. It's reduced our exp- experience of community. It's, it's kind of ransacked our rhythms. It's laying us low. Paul says, yeah, I know how to do that. Who knew that we were, when we were going into a pandemic, we were supposed to be bringing this sense that, yeah, we can learn contentment here. Paul says, I know how to do that. Paul learned to be brought low. In Paul, we are engaging a man that was equally satisfied, whether when he was preaching before King Agrippa or when his life and liberty took a hit and he's confined and shackled and imprisoned in Rome. So I guess the question that makes me want to ask is how do you do when your dreams and your life don't intersect? They, they just miss one another. How, how do you do when life seems to force you down rather than, than pull you up? See, life begins to change when we see, when we begin to see the denial of our desires differently. In other words, it's not a penalty from God. It's not a punishment for God. It's it's God defining the pathway for our walk. You know, the Christian life is like it's like walking down a hallway. And we know that we know that God and heaven, you know, are leading us. You know, we're we're moving toward God, we're moving toward heaven. But there's this hallway, there are doors on both sides. And there are times where we'll come upon a door. And we will feel like God wants us to go through that door because we have prayed for what's beyond that door. We've sought God. We've sought counsel. Everything inside of us indicates that we're supposed to go through that door. And there's great enthusiasm because there's new opportunity beyond that door. And there's a new vista and new experiences. And we go and try the door, and the door is locked. In fact, the door's not just locked, but it's bolted shut. And we'd knock on the door, and there's no response, and the door does not yield. 
We, we start to beat on the door. We put our shoulder against the door, and that door will not yield. We bloody our fists beating upon the door, and, that, and it will not yield. And yet, we don't understand it because we think God led us through that door. And we eventually, we collapse at the foot of the door, unable to comprehend a God who might inspire a desire and not satisfy it. Not recognizing that we follow a Savior who when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane was the one who said, let this cup pass. But I want your will, not my will. That there were even times where Jesus did not have all of his desires satisfied, that there are some ways, there are some ways of God's working, there are some places of the human heart that will only be accessed by an unsatisfied desire. And sometimes God does his best work in those places where we have dreams that remain unsatisfied, and the kind of godliness that can be created out of that is amazing, but we think it's all about punishing us. We think it's all about living under the penalty of something we did wrong in the past. God's there, no, you don't get it at all. I'm a father who loves you, and I'm doing a deep work in your life. Oh, yeah, I know you'd prefer this to be, to be satisfied. I know you understand this is the dream of your life, but I've got a bigger dream for your life. And so we pick ourselves up, and we dust ourselves off, and we, we keep going down the hallway. And the next couple of doors open up, and maybe another one keeps shut. But the whole time we're moving toward God. We're moving toward heaven. And we're beginning to realize that there is no peace in life until we become convinced that our place is his choice. That our place right here, right now, is his choice for us. And so my question again is, how do you do when your dreams and your life don't intersect, when, when life is forcing you down rather than, rather than lifting you up. I brought a quote this morning by J.I. Packer, and this is a, this is a fantastic quote. J.I. Packer once said, quote, the world's idea that everyone from childhood up should be able at all times to succeed in measurable ways and that it is a great disgrace not to, hangs over the Christian, Christian community like a pall of acrid smoke. Can I make an appeal to you this morning? Can I just make one appeal that's coming from deep within my heart? Don't buy the world's vision of success. Don't buy the world's vision of success, a world that tells you that there's no place for trial, no place for failure, no place for an unsatisfied ambition, no place for I must decrease, but he must increase. People live their lives craving worldly success, never realizing that God may ordain their hunger to save their soul. Never realizing that God is more committed to our rescue than our earthly success. And sometimes to get to our rescue, he will violate our earthly success to secure our rescue. And here's the thing. 
Paul got it. Paul understood it. It's how he was able to find peace in prison because he realized that his success was not linked to assent. That he, he learned the secret that links his identity to something outside of assent, to something outside of prosperity, to something outside of abundance. And that's why this entire line of thought converges in verse 13. It's the secret of contentment unveiled. I can do all things <clears throat> through him who strengthens me. So Paul completes the lesson. He wants us to understand both the secret and the source of his contentment. This is it. You ready? This is what it is. It is him being in him who strengthens me. And of course, him who strengthens is Jesus Christ. So, Paul is informing us that contentment is learned by becoming experts at examining and enjoying what it means to be in Jesus Christ, our union with Jesus Christ, a union that, by the way, carries power, strength to see God even when we feel chained in life, even when we feel confined, even when we feel imprisoned, strength to see God even when we feel chained, strength to, to do all things because of the strength he makes available to us, strength to believe that God is treating us even though we don't see it, even though we can't perceive it, he's treating us according to his goodness, according to his loving kindness, that he's being a rewarder of those who seek him. And ultimately, a strength to see and remember what Christ accomplished for us upon the cross and to recognize that the loudest statement of love that can be made over our life has already been made by virtue of what Christ did on the cross. And that's why this whole thing returns to the heart of what Thomas Watson said when he said, if you have not what you desire, the gospel, the cross, reminds us that we have more than we deserve. Think about it this way. <clears throat> Think about it this way. At the, at the heart of discontent is this conviction. It, it, it's, it's this. You strip it all down, it, it, it goes right to this place. I don't have what I deserve. I, I'm not getting what I deserve. I deserve so much better in this situation, in this relationship, in this family. I, I don't, you know, I, I can't understand it all, but I'm not getting what I deserve. And here's how the gospel speaks to that, because the gospel answers with this cheery news. Um, you're absolutely right. You're not getting what you deserve, and you can thank God for that. 
Because the heart of discontent is this subtle comparison that produces this idea that we deserve better than we have. But the gospel turns that complaint on its head and reminds us that regardless of our state, be it humble or exalted, plenty or hunger, abundance or need, regardless of our state, we live infinitely above what we really deserve. That what we deserve was what Christ received. What Christ did not deserve is what he received. He received what we deserved. And and this begins to, to break up the fallow ground of our discontent because the gospel starts to do its work within our hearts. But it's because we're moving toward the gospel. See, most people think that discontent could be solved by just visiting an impoverished area of our city and maybe meditating upon how much better we have it than they have it. As if the key to contentment is just comparing ourselves with those in less favorable situations. And, you know, there's a time to do that. That can be helpful, but that's not the point. See, the point is we don't ultimately find contentment by comparing ourselves to those who are worse off. We find contentment by comparing what we have to what our sins deserved. We find contentment by remembering the gospel. It's the gospel that reminds us of what our sins deserved. It's the, it's the gospel that takes us back to the reality that we were spiritually wretched, that we were lost, that we were miserable, that we were broken beings before God. And what's more, we clung prideful to that place of, uh, uh, of being stuck and being unable to move forward and powerless to do anything to alter our circumstances. And what's more, we were incomprehensibly committed to our own destruction. That's where we were. That's who we were. That's the situation of where it was. But God, who is rich in mercy came to us in the person of Jesus Christ as a result of what took place on the cross and through the resurrection by the love of God, and he wrenched us free from our irrational commitment to our own destruction and died in our place by living the perfect life, sacrificing himself, rising on the third day, and now he gives us reason to live and hope that we will live again, and the power to do all things through him who strengthens us, even during historic disruptions like a pandemic. And this is where Paul is trying to speak to us in this day from a prison cell. And his whisper makes its way through time and lands in our ear this morning as he says, And that's the secret of contentment. And when we have it, it frees us to be at rest in the present and yet still dream about the future. Paul sat in prison content, and yet he had great ambitions to take the gospel to Rome and other places. And so like him, we too must live at peace in the present while we still burn for more and ask for more and press for more 
and strive for more and pray for more and live for more. And yes, if necessary, die for more. So, if you're here this morning and you have not what you desire, well, take heart and take comfort. Don't take a break because, as Watson said, if you have not what you desire, you have more than you deserve. Let's pray. Lord, we, we're just humbled. Lord, our hearts are, are ransacked by the reality of what you accomplished for us by dying for us and, and rising on the third day, the hope that that gives us in this present place. Lord, we're not fighting for your approval. We're not having to live and crave and to, to succeed in order to be approved by you. But Lord, that approval has already been secured by virtue of what you accomplish on our behalf. Lord, I pray that we would feel, even as we worship in closing, even as we leave today, that we would experience in a tangible way that approval. But it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't come because we get good news about some area of anxiety, but it would come because we are remembering your cross because we are applying your gospel and because we are thanking you for all you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.